Welcome to the Razor Show with the Athletics' Nick Underhill and Jeff Powell, plus three-time Super Bowl champion Matt Chatham. And welcome back to the Razor Show. This is Matt Chatham on a sleepy Monday morning after a very impressive Patriots blowout win against the Steelers on Sunday Night Football. They drop some banners, they do all the fun stuff, and... uh, our uh, warriors here for the athletic, the writers and and uh, excellent reporters and Jeff Howe and Nick Underhill, they're doing God's work. They're up there, uh, you know, late late last night at Gillette, uh, pounding out content for you guys and uh, working the locker rooms and doing the podium and all those kind of things and getting the insight that I don't have. Uh, and so the way this is going to kind of go on Mondays, uh, expectedly, is. Uh, you know, those guys have a much more rigid schedule, diff- more difficult schedule than I have post-game, especially on these crazy late-night games. So we're not always going to be together. You hear us together in the roundtable environment uh, in the late-week show, but in this particular show, it's going to be more of a quick game review, and we really want to get into each person's uh, little divergent views, I guess, or things that stood out to them because it's three different sets of eyeballs with three different sets of experiences. So um, I'm going. we're not in the room together with Nick Underhill this particular time. Nick uh, had a prior commitment, but Jeff was, as I mentioned, uh, grinding away uh, with a, t- a difficult evening of work and uh, got to dive back into the films and on top of all the other stuff he did in the locker room. So... We're going to get his views here first, and then I'm going to react off of that. So, uh, And then obviously give you some of mine at the end. But I like here that uh, you're going to hear a little bit different than the old pod stuff where uh, it's just a jock or just a reporter. We can kind of all play off of one another. But really wanted to get Jeff's take here, and he knocks it out of the park uh, with some stuff that uh, we'll react to off react to after. Excuse me. It's, it was a long night for me as well, folks. Got that first cup of coffee, though. Let's get into this. Here's Jeff Howe on some of his big takeaways from this weekend's game. What's up, everybody? Let's get to a, sort of the post-game wrap of the Patriots' 33-3 to victory against the Steelers Sunday night in the opener. And we're going to hit on some broad topics. There's going to be a lot of this stuff that I'm going to add more context to in my list of takeaways that will be up soon on The Athletic, but... You know, there's a lot of stuff in terms of minutia that wouldn't really it kind of put you to sleep here on the Razor Show. And we're not trying to do that. We're trying to wake you up, especially on a slow-moving Monday like this one. But sort of the broader takeaways. Number one, you look at what the offense did, especially considering how rusty they looked at times. I mean, there were some throws that Tom Brady made. Two of his best, of course, were on the touchdowns to Philip Dorsett. And then there was another beauty on the long ball to Gordon for 45 yards when he took a hard hit. I mean, this was an offense that only got three preseason series with Tom Brady under center. And they hit the field without Demarius Thomas, who was still sort of getting through a hamstring injury. Of course, they're going to be adding Antonio Brown to the mix on Monday. And... Even Damian Harris, their third-round pick, who at this point is just solid running back depth, was a healthy scratch, although might still be kind of shaken up on on some of the stuff that he was dealing with through the summer, at least in terms of his development. So this is an offense that scored 33 points, looked rusty, and is going to only get stronger at the skill positions as the season goes on. So a heck of a debut for the Patriots, and I can't just gloss over the Antonio Brown thing. I mean, this is... Uh, 
I think all of the, the takes and everything have been well documented over the last 48 hours. I know we certainly covered the heck out of this story on The Athletic. If you miss any of our stuff uh, from Nick or myself and other writers across the country, I mean, there's a lot going on in The Athletic if you want to freshen yourself up. But th- this is going to go one of two ways. And number one is what the Patriots are hoping is that he really did intentionally pop his way out of Oakland in order to get to New England. And that was something that that's a theory that has been floated across the league in terms of the teams. This isn't just agent speak or you know media speculation. Teams I I heard on Saturday morning even before the Raiders had released Antonio Brown that the the league-wide assumption was that he was going to be joining the Patriots by the end of the day. Obviously that's how it happened. So the Patriots have to be hopeful that he's going to come in, put his head down, and no no reps off in practice, certainly no periods off in practice. He can't come in like Reggie Wayne did a few years ago and expect to thrive in this offense, not with guys like Julian Edelman at the top of the depth chart and what Josh Gordon has kind of done to make himself successful in his first calendar year in New England and right on down the line, not just a wide receiver, but at every other position in the depth chart. So... If Antonio Brown is going to leave all that stuff behind in Oakland, and of course some of the stuff we we probably haven't even heard about that happened in his career in Pittsburgh, and he's going to be a model citizen with the Patriots, uh, this is a direct comparable to Randy Moss back in 2007, and it could have major, major rewards for the Patriots, not just the offense, but in their team-wide perspective as a whole in 2019. I mean... The guy is still an all-world player. He's still one of the most talented skill position players in all of the league. And he does a lot of the things that the Patriots already do well. This isn't like bringing in Moss in 07 and all of a sudden translating to more of a vertical passing game. Antonio Brown is like a souped-up version of Julian Edelman or has been over the last seven years or so. So you can just plug Brown right in and, and get a lot of the same stuff that you've gotten out of guys like Edelman who have come through the system and been successful. So this isn't Josh McDaniels saying, oh my goodness, I have to go back to the lab and completely rewrite the offensive playbook. No, this is going to be a situation where you say, this guy does everything that you want him to do within the the confines of this offense, and now you can maximize his strengths. So it could be a marriage that really flourishes. The other side of it, who knows? Maybe it doesn't work. Maybe everything's a ruse. Maybe... Uh, what we saw in Oakland is who Antonio Brown has become at this stage in his career. And if the antics repeat themselves in Foxborough, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and say he's got one strike and he'll be out because there have been instances when guys have missed meetings, been late to meetings. You know, Josh Gordon last year uh, was had some issues with tardiness and you know, the Patriots gave him a couple more chances. So it's not like Antonio Brown is going to be able to it's again, it's not a one strike and done type of policy. I wouldn't imagine, you know, this isn't the Patriots telling me this. I'm just speculating more than anything. You got to give a guy a little wiggle room to kind of adapt to this system. But as long as he doesn't start repeating mistakes, as long as it doesn't become that major public or publicized social media type of drama that uh, derails the reputation of those within the locker room, he's going to have plenty of opportunities to come in and and succeed. But if that does pop up, then again, he'll be gone. And you look at, I mean, it's shoot. You could put Belichick in a no lose position. B 
because he can sit there and say, this guy, yeah, he's as talented as anybody in the league, but he didn't do what he was supposed to do. I got rid of him. You guys who are still here are doing what you need to do, and I'm reaffirming my faith and my belief in you, and that's why you are here. So, again, it's almost like Belichick can't lose and, you know, let the the money fall where it may. I mean, if this blows up like it did in terms of the Raiders situation and the Raiders are going after all that guaranteed money in a case that they have a very good chance, I would assume, of winning, you know what, maybe the Patriots do the same thing. So, again, just sort of spitballing on that one. But the offense got off to a tremendous start. I will kind of get to my second point with the offense, with the offensive line. And, you know, Sony Michelle, the yards per carry, clearly not where we expected them to be. I think part of that is credit to the Steelers. They did a lot to sell out against the run, or I shouldn't say sell out against the run. They have good talent in the front seven. And they handled their business pretty frequently. You know, Marcus Cannon had some, uh, what I had was three plays when he could have done some blocking better. And I also had him, I jotted down three plays when Cannon was tremendous at helping open a hole for, you know, twice for James White, once for Sony Michelle. So Michelle was so good in the summer that I, I don't expect this to be something that just frequently occurs throughout the season. I mean, there's also only so much he can do. He needs some help from his offensive line. There was a stretch in the second quarter when he had, I think it was three consecutive runs of one or two yards, and there might have even been a no gain in there. Uh, and all he was doing was running into an offensive line that couldn't really make any much of a push. So again, this it all goes hand in hand, and you, you need better blocking in front of you, and then we'll see what Sony Michelle can truly do because it, this wasn't this wasn't Sony Michelle all of a sudden reverting and becoming a lesser version of himself. I think this was just a case of having a tough night on the ground in more of your traditional running offense. It opened up a bit more once Brady got into a rhythm in the Patriots' second and third series of the game and, and thereafter. So, you know, that was key. Uh, speaking of Cannon, as of this recording, we still don't know the extent of Cannon's shoulder injury or the arm injury, uh, whatever it happens to be. I know it was announced as a shoulder, but uh, there was a lot of contact to that left arm as he hit the ground. And if he's out, look, he just had the best camp, I thought, of his career because he was healthy. So that's why it's got to sting even more to go out and have that type of injury in the first game of the regular season. Uh, he did allow a couple quarterback hits. Like I said, uh, he was up and down in, in terms of a run blocker. Uh, the right side of the line as a whole was uh, less than what I ex- didn't perform up to expectations because you look at Mason and Cannon and, and you have such high expectations for those two that it is surprising anytime they let somebody near Tom Brady or, you know, if a guy like Mason can't have a devastating run block. Uh, it's it's almost shocking because of the, the expectations that he's set for himself. Uh, Mason allowed three pressures. He got called for a holding penalty. So you look at those four knocks for Mason, the two QB hits for Marcus Cannon. And, you know, again, the right side of the line, uh, there are things that they certainly would have liked to have done better. But uh, you got to highlight the left side of the line. Joe Tooney, who played left guard for the vast majority of the night before moving to right tackle, for Cannon when he went down, Joe Tooney had another clean sheet, and we're used to seeing that from him after he really became the most improved player on the roster in 2018 
and his versatility, his performance so far in the last several months, uh, building up into the 2019 season, indicates that he's a guy who could is continuing to get better and is going to absolutely get paid at some point within the next year. So great night for Tooney. Isaiah Wynn had a really great night, too. I mean, I made a lot of speculation in the last few weeks that Isaiah Wynn is probably bound for rotational work at the start of the season. He played wire to wire, and it was interesting. He allowed a sack and got called for a hold. But let's kind of take a step back. I mean, the guy played, I think it was 47 preseason snaps, really only got about three or four solid weeks of full practice time with the starters, so the conditioning, he was a lot. He was available to play wire to wire, which is solid. The sack that he allowed came on the final play of the third quarter, and the holding penalty came in the fourth quarter. So you think about that, you put it in context, and you know what? Maybe the conditioning, you can't expect anybody to, to be able to go wire to wire, but magnify it with a guy like Isaiah Wynn, who missed his entire rookie season, and then got off to a late start because he was still rehabbing that torn Achilles in his second season. So it would make sense for those two blemishes to happen later in the game. But all in all, I would say a very, very good A-minus type of start for Isaiah Wynn. And that's something we expected because we know he can play. And Ted Karras, you know, I saw my Twitter feed was blowing up throughout the game. I mean, everybody sort of saw it in real time. You, you wondered what was going on with the shotgun snaps. Bill Belichick even admitted on Monday with his conference call that that's something the Patriots are going to have to improve. You, you need a little more uh, precision, uh, I guess more of a fastball in terms of those shotgun snaps. Uh, the, my thought in real time was like – I feel like you would have seen that in practice. So why would it all of a sudden come to, you know, I, I doubt that was the first time they had seen it in the game. I mean, why wasn't it being coached better? So again, maybe that's something Matt can kind of allude to or, or you know, get to uh, kind of enhance that that viewpoint because he's seen this stuff uh, better, of course, through the eyes of an ex-player. And, and again, could just add a little more context to it. Uh, anyway. I'll get to the defense, and they were outstanding too. That was more expected because, again, this is something we we had known the defense was going to be good, and of course they were. All of this, of course, happened while Kyle Van Noy was inactive because his wife was giving birth. So that's, I mean, obviously a great life moment for him, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think this is debatable, but in my opinion, the guy made the right choice. Uh, that's something that, that's a, a perfect excuse to miss a game. And so, again, you talk about the Patriots' second-best pass rusher over the last two years. You're going to only add a little more boost to the pass rush when he comes back next week in Miami, a team that is, is looking like a potential 0-16 candidate after the way they came out of the gates against Pittsburgh. Uh, I'm sorry, against Baltimore in week one. But anyway, um, then you look at the coverage. The coverage was, I mean, John Jones... He had, we kind of have been singing his praises for quite some time. He played the best football of his career uh, in the playoffs against Kansas City and St. Louis. I said St. Louis again, still can't shake that. Against the Rams, wherever they call home these days. And John Jones allowed one catch on six targets for seven yards and had two pass breakups. Uh, was solid throughout. 
Uh, one reason why I was told he was off to such a good start in the summer was this was the healthiest he had been uh, basically in, in a couple of years. And you talk about a guy who was coming in undrafted. You knew there was going to be a, a steeper learning curve for someone like that. So really in the time that he's been more of a, a relied upon player or a guy who has gotten those defensive reps, uh, this is the first time in basically his career since you know that has been part of the equation and he's been healthy. So you put those two things together, you marry those two things together, and that's why I think we're seeing the best version of, version of John Jones, and it's why he just got that three-year extension, which he had to know was coming after the Patriots traded both Keon Crossan and Duke Dawson during final roster cuts. So a solid start for him. I thought it was crazy. Stephon Gilmore allowed four catches for 43 yards, and the numbers make it sound worse than it was. I mean, there was one catch. It was a 19-yarder against Juju Smith-Schuster, on third and 10. I'm sure he would like to have that one back. It wasn't a down night. It was just when we talk about the, the huge expectations that guys like Shaq Mason and Marcus Cannon have created for themselves, you know, it's the same thing with Stephon Gilmore. This is the most catches he's allowed, I, I guess ironically, since week 15, the last time the Patriots played Pittsburgh. I mean, he never allowed more than two catches during any of the Patriots' five games down the stretch after, you know, the five-game winning streak to close the season and win Super Bowl 53. So you, you look at the, the defensive performance, and you say, even though Gilmore didn't have a bad night, I don't want it to sound like that. What I'm trying to get at is, and I'm probably doing a poor job of it, what I'm trying to get at is Gilmore is going to be even better. So you get Kyle Van Noy back in the mix. You're going to get an even better version of Stephon Gilmore the rest of the way. And the defense that has allowed six total points in its last two meaningful games uh, there's there's reason to believe it's going to be even better. I saw there there was one knock on the pass rush or lack thereof. But look, Ben Roethlisberger did a really good job of getting rid of the ball quickly. There were times when I saw guys like Michael Bennett or Chase Winovich uh, get through their block quickly enough. But again, Roethlisberger got rid of the ball so quickly that it really didn't factor in. You don't get credit for a pressure. If you just beat your man, you got to actually impact the play. You have to create, you know, pressure. So uh, I tabulated 12 disruptions, which is slightly less. There were more often than not last season, the Patriots had between 16 and 20 uh, from my count. So 12 is a little low. But again, part of that is because you're going against a good quarterback, a good, a good offensive line. And uh, the disruptions came, I mean, the Patriots got home plenty of times. And when I say disruptions, I count those as sacks, quarterback hits, and pressures. So you got a really good night, uh, or a, a really good second half out of Chase Winovich. He had three pressures, he drew a holding penalty, all of that came in the second half. So I think there was a, a spotlight on Winovich because he had such a good preseason but when he had a chance to do it against the Panthers starters in week three, he was a lot quieter. But look, if you got Winovich coming in fresh as part of maybe that second wave of pass rushers and, and you give him a chance to kind of go 100 miles an hour, he's going to create uh, a little more havoc. So that's the situation where, you know, maybe this is an overreaction or hyperbole on my part, but it could have been a situation where Belichick said, I'm saving you are your best reps for the second half when their starters start to get a little tired. And that'll allow him to use, you know, the amount of energy that he brings to the field to create some havoc. Diedrich Wise, who is basically a sub rusher, 
uh, also had a good night. You know, he had that strip sack down by the goal line in the third quarter. He also had a couple pressures. All of that, again, also in the second half. So when the game got to be a whole lot more one-sided, that's when the pass rush started to hit home a lot more. And you know, Jamie Collins, quarterback hitting a couple run stuffs. Dante Hightower had three tackles in the first series, drew a holding penalty on the second series. So there was, you know, the Roethlisberger, again, I don't think it was a bad night in terms of the pass rush whatsoever. Uh, I, I kept seeing that from, oh, well, you know, they allowed three points, but they didn't really get after the quarterback. Look, you saw how much they got after the quarterback in the preseason. We know how much talent they have in the front seven. They're going to continue to get after the quarterback. The pass rush was really good last year. Maybe the sack numbers weren't there uh, where, you know, with the elite teams in the league, but they still got after it. And there was one other instance when it was in the second half, the Steelers had second and 15 and then third and 15. The Patriots came out with seven defensive backs and they got pressure on both plays. So they don't need to even have, you know, you don't have to have six guys in the front seven in terms of down linemen, linebackers, or seven guys in the front seven to create that pressure. The Patriots have been able to do it with just a three or a four-man rush at times, and that was a good example of how they were able to do that. So I've said my piece. I rambled for 20 minutes. I'm going to kick it over to Chatham and let him finish out the rest of the show. We'll see you guys later in the week with more of a preview of that Pats-Dolphins game down in Miami. All right. Some great stuff there from Jeff. And uh, one of the things that I, I like that he did jump on is he got right into offensive line talk. And that's what Jeff Jeff is so good at because he's tra- he's tracking and charting all this stuff. He's getting into all the details and uh, is going to have the, the cumulative stuff that I may not have picked up on as I'm just trying to canvas the whole deal. But I like that he talked about how, you know, there th- was – a big, pretty score, obviously, with 33-3, but he's able to get into sort of the uh, the more uh, minutiae as far as how many po- you know positive plays and negative plays and things like that each of the guys had. So I'll probably stick to more generalizations, but uh, I did also notice the thing that Jeff had mentioned relative to Marcus Cannon having some up-and-down plays, some dominant plays, and then sometimes where the right side was actually meant to be the point of attack and they didn't get the yards, we've seen them in the past. But I thought Jeff's point that... that uh, Let's first also credit the other side. That's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, talented front up there for the Patriots to, or for the Steelers, excuse me, defensively. So that's a big part of it. It's not as if every down is expected to be a win, but we didn't see uh, the down in down out wins in the running game that we would hope to have seen. Uh, some really good runs actually by Rex Burkhead, and I'll get that into my my segment later. But uh, one one of the big things I liked that Jeff brought out though is that. He touched on the continuity element. He touched on the idea that you're going to need to see these guys. Uh, well, I guess the, the ceiling for these guys will be realized once they've logged time together. And the unfortunate thing here is that they've now been interrupted with the ability to do that. You know, we're all very, very happy, as Jeff mentioned, that Isaiah Wynn goes wire to wire. It's good for the young man. You come back from the injury. You, you sort of knock it out of the park on your first day back. Uh, but a big part of that is also working with a guy next to you, and that's been Joe Tooney. But because Joe, you know, had to flop over to the right side because of Marcus Cannon's injury, it's going to be tough to get into sort of continuity world. I mean, that's they're supposed to get better in concert, and uh, 
the concert's been interrupted, obviously with uh, with Teddy Karras at no or at at the center position, and and now presumably Joe Tooney rides it out at right tackle, and 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 Enuma, I can't say the word, the e word guy, uh, and I'll learn that. We're gonna have to learn that by the later week show <laughs> is gonna ride it out at left guard. I mean, I, it seems to me that that's where they're gonna go. Um, and we're going to have to learn these guys' strengths because we just saw those a couple series there at the end of the game where that configuration was on the field. But going into the game, I guess we all have to kind of assume that's it moving forward. And again, I have no information that these guys are the reporters and they'll figure that out later in the week if we get sort of a sense of how long this might possibly be with Marcus. But we will learn from that. But yeah, the offensive line to me was a big story in the game, in part because it's a 33 point offensive output night but some of the finishes some of the times where they didn't finish drives this ended up actually being a very you know sort of a shot play kind of game it wasn't a great red zone day uh they hit with the big time plays had some very efficient drives but then it was usually from hitting a little further out the times where they needed to kind of close it out with maybe a five or six yard run those kind of things or a five or six yard run to get you down low to play action to finish it uh that wasn't there so they're self-critical they're always going to look to be a little bit better um, you know, Jeff went hard on the AB stuff, and uh, I think it's going to be really interesting. I won't spend much time on that because it doesn't relate necessarily to this game. I liked his perspective there, and I'm really looking forward to that when the three of us are in the room together to kind of dive into, yeah, the the, the disciplinarian uh, hypotheticals, but even more than that, how this thing works out logistically on the football field. Because I think ultimately that's going to be the answer with all things, uh, whether or not this thing works out. And uh, Jeff went hard on rush rotation. I love that he he picked up on some of those details about who is in and where. Uh, Situationally, he he touched on Dietrich Wise. Dietrich was mostly a second-half rusher, as Jeff had mentioned. Uh, But he was also in some of the just three-man stuff when it was like, okay, we're up quite a bit. We're going to drop more. Dietrich seems to be a guy that they trust a little more to cover more ground. He's the lengthy guy. He, that's sort of his different makeup kind of stuff. So uh, I, I like that uh, that Chase Winovich got his time. I was sitting there sort of waiting those first several series to go by, wondering when they might come in and use him. And Shalit Calhoun got a real heavy heavy workload for the night. So I think they have to come away from him and go, man, there's, there's still a lot more there in the rush stuff. And uh, I'll get into some of more of the particulars here as I roll right through the deal. But uh, Jeff Jeff went high points, and I think that's really where the stuff was at. A surprisingly efficient offense, but that has a lot of room to grow. Offensive line continuity being something they're going to look for more from, but eh, it's hard to do that when you've, when you've had a couple major injuries in the group and some uncertainty about what will come behind that. Uh, and then the rush rotation, man, that's where this is all about. And that's really where the depth of this team is on the defensive side of the ball, other than secondary, which is, can you, when you, can you pump up the extreme depth in two particular position groups? We're going to do that. It's a weird team that way. So I'm going to dive right into some keys here that were basically just when I went through the film, this is the stuff that stood out to me. I don't like to go through this iteratively. I don't want to necessarily beat you over the head with this play, that play, this play, that play. We'll stay high line here. We'll try to make this uh, a tighter show uh, to not to not let this drag on too far. But I want to hit on the big stuff because these are a lot of the questions that Jeff and Nick and I were talking through in these several shows that led to the first one. What would happen? How would this flush out? How would they handle the situation? I think a lot of those answers clearly got got answered on this first Sunday evening. But we all wondered together what would happen with Josh Gordon. You know, a brief amount of time. He's now out there. Um, he's thrown into the fire a bit. He was only a nine game or whatever it was a year ago guy. So it's not like he's got years in the system or anything like that. And I'm going to diverge a little off the porch here and talk about something that I think is a, 
a really great attribute to Josh that isn't going to be a headline thing. Uh, but he blocks his ass off. And I like, I love that, you know, you've got the bigger guy, you know, he's six, three or whatever the heck he is. He's a, obviously ripped, uh, Adonis kind of body guy, but he's so strong and he's actually willing. And you saw it a couple times to put his hands on outside linebackers. And that's something that, you know, I, I, I had in, in my own career, like when you're a walked out linebacker, if you have to walk out over either a, a big receiver in the slot or one that's sort of motions over and is close in the wing position, the one, the smaller guys are really easy to throw aside. I mean, they just don't have the weight. And and Josh isn't heavy. You can see when he gets shocked by some of the bigger linebackers when he tries to lock up with them. You can see him bounce a little bit. He's not, he isn't a tight end. I don't mean that. But you can tell he's a willing participant. He gets in there and really uh, helped uh, on a couple plays. He, he sort of helps other plays break. One for Rex, one for Julian. He's willing. And you like to see that. You know, it's it, Josh is definitely not a diva type. This is not a guy that, hey, I catch balls, don't, you know, stay away from my legs kind of thing. Not that at all. And you really kind of have to be that way to, to log time here, because when you're not getting targets, you got to go out and do some stuff. And, and he really did. So unfortunately for y'all, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump around a little bit here, sides of the ball. So I'll, I'll do my best here to, to just plow through this. But one of the other things that really stood out to me beyond Josh's physicality on the offensive side, that's both catching the ball and blocking. It was the physicality of the front, albeit not with big guys uh, on the defensive side of the ball. And what I mean by that is, you know, you expect offensive linemen to be physical. You expect defensive linemen, if say we're, you know, in like an obvious run situation, to be physical. But what that what was surprising to me is with some of the smaller guys like Shalit Calhoun, like Bennett playing more of an interior role, like Wise as an edge guy in just a three man rush, with Chase Winovich, who's just so damn disruptive. I think you guys are really gonna if you already don't are really gonna love this guy as his role increases throughout the year. He's a, he's a pest. Uh, but those guys played physical. There's a lot of uh, Steelers' bigger bodies getting knocked around by mid-sized bodies who are just playing at a better tempo. They've got a lot of guys involved in that front that aren't body big, but play big because they hit and they're fast and they run. Uh, it's just, it's just, a, it was a fun group to watch. It was, it was kind of what I was hoping for. It certainly wasn't perfect, uh, but I think there's got to, there, there's good reason for enthusiasm with Bennett, with Wise, with Winovich, with uh, with Shalit Calhoun, obviously the linebackers with Hightower and Bentley, and these guys all really attack the line of scrimmage. Jamie Collins is the one different one there. John Simon should never leave him out. And it's always so easy to do it, but man, he's still out there playing well himself. Uh, Jamie Collins is one of the guys different. He doesn't blow people up. He does run throughs and he's quick as a cat. He gets past every like it's just not it's almost laughably unfair when an offensive lineman has to get out of his stance if he's in an advantageous position and try to reach Jamie or try to scoop uh, Jamie on the second level. Jamie just runs by people. He's so good at that and it was like it was just that moment where you remembered, "Oh yeah, that's what that guy does." And he does it at such an incredibly high level. One thing I will say about the rush to kind of wrap up that portion of it, uh, you just talking in generalities of that entire front group. What I love about them is there were plays that, and I guess actually Jeff and Jeff and Nick and I will kind of work this out through the course of the year. I'm interested to see on what they what they qualify as a hurry, what they call qualify as a pressure. I know lots of people have different definitions of that, and I'm not as concerned of which which where which one is which one isn't. But one of the things that I thought was really cool uh, was the number of times where I would call them wins. Uh, basically, you're you're clearing clearing the tackler guard within the first second or two you're you're winning 
without having to go to a third and fourth counter. It's not like you're beaten, reset, and got to do something else as a rusher. It's one 1,000, two 1,000, hand slap, or passed, or just a rush passed and dip under on the other side. It's just like quick counter or quick initial move. There was so much of that in that first half. And they didn't always bring fruit. And I think that's important because sometimes guys might not even get, you might not get credit necessarily for, uh, you know, I'm talking like coaching staff here, like if they're grading your, your sheet or whatever, they'll, they, they'll will make a note and it may say win uh, and you may get a plus two kind of situation for your grade or however they're, they're doing it with this particular group. I don't know. I don't know if Bill's still sticking with that system, but whatever it may be, the point is you can get a win and not necessarily have a, uh, it not necessarily have actually pressured him. And it's not because of the quality of work you did. It's because the play call got it out quickly, right? Three-step pass, especially if you're looking away from where that rush went happened, it may not actually be pressuring the pass. But what you learn about is you learn about a guy's ability to just win one-on-one quickly. And you hope that you start to log the play calls alongside that that take more time, right? That, that take more time that uh, will eventually become sacks, uh, strip sacks and things like that uh, down the road. So I thought there was a lot of that, Dietrich Wise, Bennett, uh, Winovich, that had several wins, I would call them, that may not rise to the level of a, of a disruption. So I that's the one thing I think we have to uh, you know kind of keep an eye out. You've got a lot of guys winning, and that's what you want in a one-on-one situation. This is not a group of guys who collectively need uh, some sort of schemed blitz to get them free. And that's a real big help, especially when you're as good as they are on the back end. Uh, Jonathan Jones, got to jump on this guy. Good grief, he's good. And I, it's, I would say I'm probably guilty of not understanding how good he was even a year ago. It was always like, hey, you know, great. They, they hit on an undrafted guy. He does a good job for them. He kicks butt. Um, you know, what a find they had. They don't have to spend big on some high draft pick guy as their slot corner, third corner guy. And we know he did really well down the stretch, uh, you know, the playoff run and the matchups they were willing to do with Jonathan. I'm watching him now in this Pittsburgh game, and it's it's reminiscent of a lot of stuff we saw in joints and then saw in the preseason games. There are times where he's not even pressured. He's jogging along, virtually striding with the receivers, which tells you he's not stressed. You know, it's not we're not in catch-up mode here. Um, and in other words, you know, it's uh, am I going to be able to stay with this guy? He stresses me as much as I stress him, uh, sort of living in his pocket. Jonathan Jones was just all over his guy throughout the night. And you never got a sense of, okay, ball's released. Is Jonathan going to catch back up to the hip? Is Jonathan going to be able to undercut this? Is Jonathan going to be able to get the PBU? There were so many times where I'd see, you know, the, the, it pans to to Jonathan being, you know, going to be the guy who's targeted, I guess, or with the receiver he's covering is being targeted. And you're like, why are you going there? You know, like you just, you, you got the sense that maybe Ben was just, putting up some 50-50 balls. And Jonathan was a big part of those where it's like, hey, man, you really, really have an important player here because he can win outside, inside, two-way goes, which is what slot corners more often see because there's you know obviously more space to left and right of you. He ended up in some boundary plays as well. I just think Jonathan Jones and, and the new contract that, uh, that he's gotten recently – what a find that is, man. So, you know, we can talk about Gilmore. He's an easy one because he's so good and, and well-paid. So I think the compensation helps you You notice him more. But uh, Jason McCourty had another solid day. Uh, J.C. Jackson uh, got in, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't a wire-to-wire situation. Here. He was much more of the rotational player. There was actually a single snap with six defensive backs on the field. I think I've, I don't know if I've ever even seen that. I wouldn't even know what to call that package. But four down. 
and no off the ball linebackers that at least that weren't you know by trade defensive backs. But um, this is a deep group. It's a cool group to watch. We're going to keep an eye on that throughout the year. But I think the Jonathan Jones addition in the midst of all that other stuff is is pretty damn cool. And Nick uh, had pressed on me, missed me on this in one of last week's shows where he asked about if Jason McCourty was really the really the starter. And those guys had noticed that much better than me. Uh, and and in looking back, yeah, Jason logged a lot of time, and and Jason was it was on top dudes, uh, you know, and getting vertical. And unfortunately, one of the big, uh, what would I guess be considered the uh, the big breaking play that they had of the day. Uh, was that one um, Simon Schuster, big Smith, Smith Schuster, whatever it is, uh, deep catch, and J Mac relaxed on it a little bit. So Jason McCourty was actually on top of the route. It was one of those plays where he's so on top of it, you're a little surprised the ball goes up, but he kind of quit at the end, just thinking, you know, this happens, it's totally natural, normal. You start to relax, they tell you not to do it, but you're so all over it, you kind of don't sense that it could possibly be coming your way. You take off one and a half strides, or not even the second stride. And then he jets back into the route, and you look up and realize, oh, crap, it's coming to me. And uh, you give up a big one there. So that was a mental lapse, uh, but really ends up being about the, the the worst defensive play they gave up. And then they harden and hold that thing to a field goal. That should have been a touchdown. My goodness, why didn't they go for that on the one-yard line? But overall, I think you're going to be really, really happy with that group. Um, and the one last thing I'll say on the defensive backs to kind of get off that portion is they tackled really well. That's another thing. It's coverage is great. They're deep in coverage, and Jawan Williams not even active, and he's the big six-three guy that that really tackles well, can play on back end and and outside. Um, you just love the 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 moments where you know they're in a third and eight kind of situation, or you're in a second and nine or ten or whatever, and you get the dump off, and you really got to keep it to only a yard or two or even less. Uh, of of run after catch, they really rally tackle quickly. Even Gilmore, who sometimes like the the the, the primo cover corner guy, doesn't like to stick his nose in there. Now Gilmore will cut things down. He will chop tackle. He won't tiptoe into it. He'll accelerate through the thing to try to get him down quickly. Both the McCourty twins tackle really well. Tackle aggressively. Jonathan loves to tackle. Uh, JC too. So I just really think. Uh, the collection they have is really good for the kind of stuff they expect of these guys. So you're going to feel good about that, and you have every reason to. Um, I'm going to flip to the other side of the ball here. I had a note here. kind of was sporadic throughout the game. Obviously, he had a couple good carries later. Had some good touches earlier. This is Rex Burkett. Burke, oh, I just burped. Rex Burkett. Burkhead. <laughs> Rex Burkhead, I thought, was really um, – the forgotten man, and I'm probably is it, it. That's my fault. I mean, I think it's really easy to get caught up in some big expectation for Sony. Uh, really excited about how many touches James is going to get. You, you know, there's a new draft pick from Alabama, and in the, this, you know, this sort of side comment in your my my weirdly functioning brain is like, oh yeah, and Burkhead's good too. You know, he'll make plays for you. No, no, he made a couple really sick. Obviously, the cut that you know was flying around social media where he he jump cut and made two defenders run into each other. That was disgusting, but. But his, uh, you know, his work in the screen game or his work in even just as an extended receiver, often like they used uh, James as well, that stuff was really helpful at times where they really needed something and it allows Tom to turn away, to turn to a, to a less obvious target. 
and you find a favorable matchup. Uh, they they must they should feel really good that they have Rex on this roster, and it's good to see him back healthy and contributing. One uh, little note I had here from you know Edelman has another big night. You know the kind of nights we always expect him to. He's at that eight-ish catches, uh, tipping right up against a hundred yards. wasn't quite there. I think he had one uh, twelve-yarder come off the board because they took the interference. But you know another Julian type night. You know doesn't get in the end zone, but he was. He was where he needed to be. Uh, he made the tough catches. He has a nice run after the catch. You see him flipping over the tackles at the end of these things. He played nails like he always does. Uh, but one of the things that I thought I found interesting was the handful of times where Edelman would actually draw coverage away from Gordon. I think we often talk about Josh Gordon. You think bigger guy. You think uh, you know the big 400, uh, uh, 400 meter kind of guy, long strider, uh, going to go take the top off of something. And Jules is going to work the underneath. Jules ran some post patterns. Uh, and, and deep in-cut routes, not saying necessarily that's where he was catching them, but there was a runoff element with Jules at times to use Gordon as the underneath stuff. Gordon on slants, Gordon on just five-yard in-cuts, Gordon on little delay low routes where he's going to be the low crosser, and Julian was in running the deep stuff. So I thought that was interesting, especially if you're you're looking at the Steelers and trying to figure out what they studied to get to this point. Yeah, they're probably studying playoff games, and you know Josh wasn't a part of that then. And Julian was often not the runoff. He was more the work it from behind and stack and find some life underneath uh, against you know linebacker matchups and things like that. But they flipped the script and some of the script and some of the things Josh did. And I thought overall Josh really rolled rolled uh, rolled the dice well. He had a great night. Um, I would also point to the run after the catchability of the group cumulatively. I think Gordon was strong run after the catch. Obviously, the touchdown he's hit, he keeps his balance. Uh, but he had another good run after the catch later, or uh, actually sequencing, I don't recall, but another one where it was, I believe, just one of those slants where he takes the initial contact and still is able to plow forward for more. You like to see that. You don't like the guys that just go directly down. I love that Jacoby Myers had the one big catch. It was on that deep over. The I don't know if you want to call it a, you know, I think the end cut hits at about 18 yards somewhere in that range. Don't know how the play fleshed out, but um, it was his route, right? We talked about this throughout training camp. That's that guy's route. And, and, you know, you find a concept that works for him. You find something that he's comfortable with, and that ended up being the route that they hit on with Jacoby. That's good stuff. So, uh, and also beyond just that, hey, he caught it, hey, he caught the concept, it was a tight throw. So Brady had to push, press it in there. Myers had to take contact. He did. He didn't just survive the contact and hang on to the ball. He came out of it, ran out the other side and got some extra yards. Good runner for the catchability there. Great stuff from him. Uh, James White in isolation, man, I think he is he is as uncoverable a guy as there is in the NFL uh, at the running back position. I, I, he is right up there with your Alvin Kamara's. He is right up there with Christian McCaffrey's. I would it's it's just flipping a coin at this point. It's unfair to any linebacker to have any of those three. That's probably your little triumphant or whatever. Uh, maybe you throw in uh, uh, Gurley as well, uh, a healthy Gurley, uh, but. These guys are ridiculous, and you almost have to go corner. Right? We haven't seen that yet, but I, I mean, with a flexed out, with a flexed out James White away from a formation, he absolutely feasts on safeties. He's obviously gonna gonna munch on linebackers all day. It's not even fair. You, you, as a linebacker, you gotta look at it and say, Coach, I'm gonna reroute him. I'm gonna try to hit him, but you can't expect me to match foot speed after that contact. I'm just trying to knock him out of his route and make Brady throw somewhere else. But man, that, that is a, a an element in this that you have to be very excited for going forth. We knew it, you know, obviously the guy's been productive year over year over year, but as, as AB gets added into this thing, as uh, we s- sort of figure out how this thing all turns, the ability to bring your backs 
out of the backfield and just toast people and have maybe potentially Rex and, and James in at the same time. And they did some of that. It's so, so damn dangerous. It, they're going to be a tough out week to week, especially with such an accurate thrower like Tom getting those balls. Um, and I wanted to mention this one little quirky play. It was a single play, and they actually didn't complete it, but it was a concept that made me go, oh, okay, I see what you're doing there. And that's how I'm thinking of all the different coverages one would have against us from the linebacker crew. And it's tough to pick up. And what I'm talking about here is when they had James and they had Rex in the backfield together, we've seen it where it's like split backs, where, hey, it's two running backs, even though it's a, a two-back personnel, it's not a fullback there with them. And they split, you know, one may protect to one side, the other releases, or they may be both releases release is both getting wides out of those guys or maybe they're both up forward and heading out to the flats uh, but that's not unusual what's unusual is when you get both backs together in the same backfield and they release to the same side and you create levels both with backs these are the kind of things we see in twins with like a wide receiver you know like two receivers extended and one's running an outcut at 12 and the other one's running an outcut at 20 and you're trying to make the defensive back being sort of a hard rocker, hard place, and the linebacker underneath it has a trouble getting to the out, and all those kind of things. It's levels, you know, different sort of layers deeper into the secondary with multiple receivers. When you come from the backfield and create levels, that's different. That is real different. And when both are a threat, that's a cool little concept. They actually missed on that, but that's the kind of thing, if you see that on film and you're Miami or any of these other teams coming forward, you're kind of hoping they don't build on that package because it's it's really a, it's a big question mark for the linebackers of how exactly to pick that thing up. And even once you do, good luck. Um, Brady, I would say overall for Brady, and, and I think Jeff did a good job of touching on this. There were some balls that were perfect, but there were, you know, there was the one where it kind of shook out a little bit early. It kind of, you know, wobbler a little bit in the air. And it looked to me like he kind of just didn't finish the throw. Uh, there was a little question because there was an in cut in driving route of some sort and then something else behind it. And it looked like Tom's ball kind of landed between the two guys. And maybe it was just not that certainty about which one of the two he was throwing to, but, I thought if at that moment he said, ooh, that was a wobbler, you know, is this going to start some storyline about him not being able to drive the ball? Well, then he's got like a dozen balls on the day where he threw darts and great tempo balls down the field. So you had to feel great about generally where Tom's arm was at on the day. And I would say, uh, you know, you had the blown coverage bomb to Dorsett. Uh, Dorsett's seam touchdown was a tremendous throw in part because he was actually covered up. You know, the defensive backs are starting to go with Dorsett up the seam. He has to, Dom has to lead him past the defender that's carrying him. So it's carrying him at the time. You're sort of trusting that they're going to come out the other end of the tunnel. So you put it out there and then hope their jets kick in. And on that particular seam throw, he also had to beat the safety there with the ball. So that's sort of, that's a high level throw, man. Uh, that's a big time throw for Tom. Uh, there's the Gordon Post later. He had the in-cut flub uh, that I would say. Uh, we kind of just talked about them. And then there was that one red zone. Uh, Tom was flushed to his right, and he's kind of on the move deep in the red zone. Tries to go to Gordon in the end zone and didn't throw a very good ball there and did have someone available out in the flat. But granted, that would have been short of the end zone, so maybe they're not. He purposely didn't choose that one, even though I think it was a little bit more open. But other than that, I mean, I, I think I just – was found the few critical throws that I think you could find. The rest of it was pretty, pretty damn good. A really accurate day hit Julian and stride several times with some just lasers where, you know, you're not breaking stride. You're able to snatch and go. And that's, that's really you want to look for. So now that I got over, uh, sort of through all the, uh, all the, 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 the normal skill position guys, 
that are going to be talking points. Demarius obviously not playing. A.B. obviously not playing. We'll get into that deeper next week. One guy I wanted to at least give him 30 seconds to shine was Gunnar Shesky because I think Gunnar's going to be an awesome punt returner. He had a couple really positive ones yesterday. Didn't necessarily get to the broken tackle breaks to the second level kind of thing. But he has uh, – people want to we'll, 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 I think because of, I guess, skin color and size and things like that, maybe see a little Julian Edelman in him. I think Julian's much shiftier. Julian sets things up and, and sort of breaks legs or breaks ankles a little bit better than Gunner does. What Gunner does is he gets shot out of a cannon. He's absolutely fearless. He charges forward. He gets to holes quickly. If they're open, he'll find them. I like that about him. Uh, he actually reminds me more of my old teammate here, Tim Dwight. Uh, Tim was here a teammate with for the Patriots one year, but I also played with Tim down in, in New York, former Iowa Hawkeye. But he had that very same shot out of the cannon kind of feel. Like you, you're quickly getting to any open window. And and uh, Gunner, I think, is going to make some make some people happy this year. His attitude's great. The way he plays is is something that you're going to really – Really be able to latch on to. He plays a, a real Patriot kind of style. So I am now swinging back, hopefully not making anyone too dizzy out there, to the other side of the football quickly and looking a little bit at some of the stuff that stood out that I think would be less normal to shine upon. Um, you know, Jamie Collins' run through, his quickness is obvious. I think Jeff may have touched on that one as well. I think he's different that way. So that's like the flash play guy. You see the flash play stuff, and you know they deserve the, all the uh, the attention they can get for those. I, I completely get that. But some of the other little minutia stuff, like Hightower jacking up guards, pressing them back as other people make tackles. I mean, there was the one play that, that made it to the highlight stuff for NBC where he, he basically knocks the tackle back, almost to his, uh, his villain wave, I believe, knocks him, put him on skates, put him back on his heels, drops, and then Hightower's in making the tackle. Big, big time play. So that one was one you, you may have already been aware of without me mentioning this. But there's also several times where Hightower, sort of his recognition, as much as just power, he's, he has 265-pound middle linebacker. He's one of the heaviest middle linebackers in the NFL. But he is not just heavy. His recognition is is really, really elite. This guy gets up into the line very quickly. He knocks people back very quickly. And a lot of times it's just him uh, putting blockers in the hole as opposed to the you know blockers getting up on him and releasing to, to create holes. So I'm just I like watching Dante Hightower play Mike linebacker. And I know there were times last year where people were up and down on him. And I, I think the best thing for High is that when he gets a stable position, when he's able to say, I'm controlling this, I'm the Mike, or if we're in sub stuff, I'm the guy that moves around on the interior. And ultimately, I read fits in a, in a, in a run game and regular in a run game and sub, and I'm better than anybody at that. I'll be quickly to those. He's one of the best-bodied guys to match up against a guard. If a guard's 310, you know, 315, 320, even with some of the bigger dudes, he's – 270. He closes that gap as best as you generally can find an inside linebacker to do. So he doesn't get overwhelmed by them. I know it's still a big, you know, sort of on the on the scale kind of difference, but that extra 20 pounds matters. Trust me. I, I mean, I played at 250, and the difference between that extra little, you know, 15 or so pounds, if you got it in your, if you got that junk in your trunk, it helps bring a little more thump. And you see that in Hightower. You see how other people react to by being hit by him, being impressed by him. 
that he's got a little extra something to him, and he's got a tremendous nose to the ball. Really nice day for him. Danny Shelton with a handful of nice stuffs. I, I didn't catch Jeff's, Jeff's number. Hope I'm not uh, bung, bungling exactly how many he had. But, and he was in a more modest role. I think there was a lot more of the interior stuff where it was Bennett than Shelton. But in the moments where it's like, hey, more obvious run kind of scenarios, Lawrence Guy was getting a little more work, and Danny was in there some – but Danny's sort of, I would say, play efficiency is super high. He, he comes in, gets a couple big-time stuffs when they need it. Uh, and it's important that he's on the roster because they don't really have another huge interior big. Brian Cowart uh, is not quite that size, not nearly that size. Um, you know, and they didn't keep Mike Pinnell would be, would be another 300-pluser. Uh, so Shelton's a different body type. When If teams are going to run in the A-gaps or teams are going to run downhill between the guards, it's good to have that body type on your on your roster. Not just have them, but have them be playing at a high level, and Danny is. That was a good sort of under-the-radar pickup midsummer. P- paid off here in this game. Connor just never really got going. Excuse me. Um, I would say the one thing here to sort of s- to, to wrap this whole thing up is, you know, I, I'm not trying to do the entire feel-good train. Uh, there were seven penalties, I believe, so there was still some muckiness, some stuff that Bill will want to work through, and I think that stuff becomes much more relevant when you start to get into closer games. Uh, but one thing that was a, is there an issue here kind of thing in the preseason was Steven Guskowski missed a couple field goals that we're used to him seeing in some of those preseason games. I thought he was really, really sharp in this game and deserves a big tip of the cap. It's not just for making them, but you don't get extra points for these unnecessarily. Necessarily, you don't. Uh, but he was center post, you know. So he was, you know, not not just making it through the through the field goal post, but he was making it down the middle, which is you, you notice that a guy's grooving. You know that a guy is putting it where he's aiming. It's like you know you play golf with your buddies and. He's stepping up to the tee and he's finding, you know, finding the middle of the fairway each and every time. That's a great sign from your kicker. Guskowski, meet, had a great night. So, anyhow, that's sort of the opening little format here. That's the salvo of the game. We're not going to go play to play to play. Jeff did a really good job of sort of going exhaustive with his stuff. I want to play off his and then give you the other things that I noticed as well and try to wrap it all together with a big picture. There's that damn ESPN fantasy thing. Again, in the background, I'm so sorry. Got to remember to turn that off. But uh, most importantly here, we can kind of set the table. Hopefully you guys get a little regurgitated stuff here from stuff you may have heard the on-broadcast people say, but maybe a better explanation of it here now in an environment that allows you to go a little long form on it. And then after that, the three of us get together and we have a little bod party, which we love. But for Matt Chatham, that's me, for Nick Underhill, and for Jeff Howe, uh, that's your Razor Show. Enjoy it, folks. We really look forward to talking at you later in the week. Remember to continue to check out those guys' great content. I'm working on something now for the Miami game myself. Uh, and just continue to spread the good word here about the old Razor Show. Brand new pod. Beat the heck out of those rating numbers on the on iTunes or uh, positive ratings and all that stuff. And give it a good review. We really, really appreciate that. And by and large, just spread the good word. We're having a blast doing it. Thanks for tuning in. That's Ray's show. Take care now.